This podcast is brought to you by Upcase. Improve your development skills by completing coding exercises that are peer-reviewed by real humans. Learn more at upcase.com. He broke the pop screen. <laughs> hey. Hey. You doing all right? I'm annoyed. Oh, man. <clears throat> so annoyed. Definitely got my cheese moved. <laughs> if it makes you feel any better, your video just went yellow, too. Yes. Yellow with rage. <laughs> yellow with rage. My, my camera pissed itself in fear. <laughs> everybody this is gordon in boston and this is mark in san francisco and this is build phase (laughs) are you watching it it's just like slowly sinking i've never seen anyone look so defeated in my entire life i'm absolutely defeated (laughs) so how you doing i'm glad i didn't go out drinking last night yeah because i'd be angry right now (laughs) okay (laughs) more angry more angry all right you good yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, I'm good now. I'm good All right. Now. No, I was going to come in here originally and, you know, say some funny things, but I don't remember any of them now. <laughs> oh, that's right. I had an idea for a moving company called Starving Martial Artists. Okay. Where okay. basically just ninjas move your armor. Yeah. They, like, come out, that's like, the whole spar, spar a bit in the oh, yard okay. and then start moving your stuff. Why are they starving? Well, no, you know, like, starving artists. Okay. It's like oh, a, it's a I thing. get it. Yeah. Right. But these guys are martial artists who I think are probably more well-equipped to help you move. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's probably fair. Mm-hmm. Just you, random thoughts. You, you could probably get VC funding for that. Oh, duh. Yeah. <laughs> it actually has like a sort. No, you know, I don't think they'd like it. Why? Because it has a very clear-cut source of income oh, and not yeah. like infinity land, mm. Um, mm-hmm. crazy possible potential mm. profits. It's grounded in, in reality, so that's not likely. Right. Oh, so how's your week, man? Well, short. Didn't Monday. we just do this? Like, yeah, I spent. I've been. <laughs> I, I just. I just did the math with Tom. I've spent a full ten percent of my work week in this room, <laughs> recording this week. Because nice. I just, you know, with Adarsh, just talked to him for two hours. <laughs> yeah, how long is that show going to be? <laughs> two hours. <laughs> wow. I don't know. We'll see. It's nice that that's the last thing I have to do. I feel bad for Tom. <laughs> He's got to edit a total of four hours of my voice this week. That's rough. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What else have you been doing this week? Uh, Transitioning to iOS 8. Mm -hmm. Fighting auto layout. The new uh, padding stuff. Yeah, layout margins. I think I I understand them now, Mm -hmm. and I'm I'm on board. They make sense. Yeah, I think that's a cool idea. Yeah, 90% of the time, when do you ever want your subviews sort of like all up on the edges of your of your super view right never yeah so this simplifies things a bit mm-hmm. once i figured out that like what those really mean in practice is that there are new types in the sort of like auto layout language that have to do with like pinning to the left right leading edge trailing edge it, there's now like left margin instead mm-hmm. of left mm-hmm. right margin instead of right um and you can actually get to those in interface builder by holding option when mm. you're making connections so if you're doing like the right click or like the control drag if you also hold option those will switch to left margin right margin top margin instead of just left right top bottom 
Cool. Once I figured that out, everything was mostly okay. Cool. And going 8.0, 8.0 only made that easy. Right. Because otherwise just I'd trash be, the... Yeah, otherwise I'd be in code having to like yeah. check a four on seven and undo all that shit. Never want to do that. <clears throat> so have you made that switch yet? The Have you thrown the... Uh, no, I actually still have a couple warnings specifically about that stuff because I'm still building for seven and that property doesn't exist. Right. Uh, not yet. When are you planning on doing that? Probably Monday. That'll be fun. Figure that gives uh, the client and their testers like the weekend to get on 8.0. Yeah, that seems fair. Send out a new build on Monday. We're at like what, 20% adoption right now? It's Friday. What? We're at like 20% iOS 8 adoption. Yeah. It's pretty yeah, good. Yeah, I want to check this morning. Yep. Pretty good. I like that speed. It's a good pace. It is. I think that's faster than last year. I think it is too because last year people were being curmudgeonly about the design. The design, yeah. And like holding out yeah. for whatever dumb reason. But this year I there's hate, really no reason. I hated that so much. I don't. I still don't understand what they thought the end result of that was going to be. Like if, like I the, I think iOS seven looks like crap, so I'm going to stay on iOS six. It's like. And then what <laughs> are you going to like, cause you're not going to stay on iOS six. I mean, you can stay on iOS six as long as you want. That's, you know, but do you think that Apple is going to be like, Oh crap, you guys were right. iOS six is so much better. We're going back to that. Like, what, what, <laughs> like what was the pot? What possible outcome? I, I kind of feel the same way about the bigger phones. Honestly, you know, people, people like, Oh, I'm not going to get one because you know, I have this iPhone four, and I like that size. I don't want a bigger phone. It's like, oh, okay, that's fine. Just understand that, like, Apple doesn't usually typically, like, change its mind about these things. So if this is the direction it's going in, this is kind of just the direction it's going in. And the end result for you is going to be you're going to have an old phone. <laughs> Period. You know? <laughs> I, don't, I just I, don't know what the end game is. <laughs> I especially don't understand it from developers. Right. Like there were developers complaining and staying right. on iOS 6. Right. Like, really? You're going to get left behind. Yeah. I saw a random comment the other day that somebody was mad. They tried to put 8.0 on their 4S and they were mad that they didn't get Touch ID. That, who? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. That makes me so angry. What? Who? Who was this? Was it just someone retweeted into your stream or no, was it? No, this was like a comment on like. Apple Insider or like Mac Rumors or oh, something. Well, those people. Par for the course. <laughs> I mean, honestly, what, like. <laughs> Side note, the shut up plugin for Safari is pretty much the greatest thing yeah. ever. Or I just, I just saw it by never going to those sites ever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but it's mostly sword. useful for YouTube. Oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. It's where it really gets a workout. Mm -hmm. That's ridiculous. It's like. I don't even know, man. <laughs> There's no good analogies. I want to make an analogy about a car getting an update and not, you, and then you don't get wings. <laughs> you know, like, yep, but I can't figure. Out, but but did they, not turn into an airplane, right? Right, but what? Like, there's no software. You never update car software. I I wouldn't know how to update car software if I tried. Yeah, well, not yet. Right. I mean, Teslas Tesla. get software updates automatically, though. Right. So there you go. I have this Tesla. They updated my software, and it's not a submarine now. <laughs> well, that's kind of not how submarines work. <laughs> but with Elon Musk, that's just a matter of time. That is a fascinating level of ignorance, though. <laughs> like to just like 
What do you what do you think is going on just in the world in general? If you think that's a possibility that this like are you super pissed off at like all buttons always? Like what like where does that stop? Where does that stop? If you think that a software update's going to give you touch ID on your iPhone, like does your doorknob bother you because <laughs> it isn't touch sensitive? even though you totally changed the locks three times already? <laughs> it explains a lot of anger. <laughs> if it's just, just flat, out, flat out. In the world, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. I feel like with that knowledge, you can get to like a deeper level of understanding about a person's motivations. <laughs> like, oh, wow, we are totally talking past each other on like every topic. <laughs> I made this base assumption about your intelligence, and I apologize. <laughs> Let's start over here. <laughs> Well, what's scary is that they're one hop away of being from being angry that it didn't turn into a five and a half inch right, device right, when they updated right. iOS eight. Right, because I mean, no, at that at that point, like anything is possible, right? <laughs> Just believe in your dreams is a little too far. Yeah, yeah, they 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 are super into the secret, like way 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 <laughs> too into the secret. <laughs> <sighs> Oh man, who else says some stupid shit? That was fun. Let's <laughs> to the internet. <laughs> uh, so I've been I've been trying to work in Swift more this week. You know, Tony's been writing a lot about the honestly, I think really awesome, crazy functional stuff. That's kind of he's constantly pushing Xcode and the compiler to its limits. He said he wrote a thing today. He was trying to figure out how to do some more stuff. So all of his stuff is based around JSON parsing, which I think it's a fascinating problem to solve. Like you can write it off as being just kind of like everybody's trying to tackle this problem. But I do think it's an interesting problem to solve JSON parsing because of how many things are at play in JSON parsing. There's type systems and object validity and JSON validity and try, you know, this is a common thing that you're going to have to write over and over and over and over again in your career. So you want to kind of try to make it as simple and streamlined as possible. So I do think it's an interesting thing, but he's doing, he's constantly doing things that are like, he's like, I wrote this and it's awesome and it works, but I also can't keep Xcode open for more than like five minutes <laughs> because it just crashes. Or he had, he said that he wrote, he made this one little change to the sequence of functional stuff. I don't know what you call, you know, that, but, um, but he made this one change and all of a sudden it took five minutes to compile <laughs> the project. Five minutes. Like, he just added one closure to this thing, and all of a sudden it went from compiling immediately, like you would expect, and you know, for all intents and purposes, like you know, a second tops. To it took five minutes to compile this thing, just because he's pushing type inference and pushing the compiler's abilities so like far, like so up to its limits. And so that stuff is awesome. I I, I really was a big fan of the post that he sent out this week and we'll link to that in the show notes because I think everyone should read it. If for nothing else to just be kind of like, like, did you even know that return value type inference was a thing in Swift? Because I did not. Do you get that? 
So he has this function that is a generic function. So it takes anything of type A and it returns an optional of type A. God, this is going to be hard to explain. You can see it in his blog post, but but basically he's passing this function in as an argument to a constructor method, right? Do you see what I'm saying? So so the constructor method takes an integer uh, string and an optional string. So just look at those first two. It takes an integer and a string. He's using the same function to pull an integer out as he is to pull a string out. Basically what the function does is it checks to see you hand it a, a key in the JSON and it tries to extract that key. And if it can extract that key as the right type, then it returns uh, it returns an optional. So it returns uh, sum that value, right? If it can't parse it as that type, it returns none. Okay. I'm looking at the blog post. Is this the pure function no, that we're talking about? It's, it's, it's way later. It's way, way. It's like towards the bottom. Hold on. Let me, let me pull up the post. Oh, is it these extract and extract pure functions? Yeah, hold on one second. Let me let me pull it up so I can look at it too. This just this this generic with the double optional just blew my mind. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty weird. So the stuff that I'm talking about under the section more type inference, he he has the JSON int and the JSON string functions. Yeah, and then he switches to this JSON parse a function that takes JSON and returns an optional A. And it does that by doing return JSON as optional as A. So it tries to cast it to whatever type A is and returns none if it can't cast it that and returns some value if it can. Uh, I see because of the because of the as question mark. Right. The, the, right. the, the downcasting will automatically return none if Exactly. If it can't if it downcast fails. into if that it, type. Exactly. So then if you look at the next thing, so like if you look above, he's using parsing out the ID and doing JSON int and parsing out the name and doing JSON string and parsing out the email and doing JSON string. Well, in the next snippet, he's just doing ID, JSON parse, name, JSON parse, email, JSON parse. Nowhere in there is the word int string. It doesn't exist. What's happening there? And this blew this absolutely freaking blew my mind is that JSON parse figures out what type to return and therefore what type to try to cast to by looking at what the argument is that it's being passed into. So since since that create function takes an integer, an int for its first value, it uses a return value type inference. So JSON parse says no one has told me what value I'm supposed to take, but I know I'm supposed to return an int. So I'm going to set A to int. And now all of a sudden, I'm dealing with ints inside there. And then the very next line, it says, I know that the name is supposed to be a string because of the constructor method. And since I know that a, that the name is supposed to be a string, I'm going to set the return type to string. And then I'm going to step backwards, so I'm going to try to cast as a string. It's insane like it's hard to wrap your head around and there's other stuff going on here right like he's passing a curried function into this apply and using bind and fmap and like some functional stuff in here basically all you have to see is that he's passing 
this JSON value, the ID. So, so dictionary key ID. He's passing that into JSON parse. And what this bind thing does, this triple arrows, uh, it tries to unwrap the optional, right? So JSON parse returns an optional. It will either succeed or it won't. And if it succeeds, then it'll return some value. And if it returns some value, then bind and uh, is that true or is it the apply? No, it's a it's apply. It's the it's the bracket star bracket afterwards. That's like chaining these things together. That says did that fail? If that previous optional returned some let's keep going and let's keep parsing and let's keep creating this user or else the entire thing fails. I see. So basically each of these operators, he's declared like the three right arrows or like the, the angle brackets with the asterisk in it. Those are all sort of like points of where it can fail in the creation of the user. Like if it, if it tries to unwrap the, you know, the object at the key of ID and it can't, it fails right there. But if it can, it binds it, you know, to the JSON parse function, but then that could also fail. So yep. it fails in the part where it tries to apply it to the next thing to parse, which would be like the name. Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. And it just and it just changed so that if any one of those parsing steps fails, you don't get a user back, you get none. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. I mean, we could step back and we can talk about the original function and the original blog post if that's a lower level. Because I honestly, to be perfectly honest, like I have such a kind of vague understanding of of what all this stuff is doing i'm fairly certain that basically bind so uh, the the main thing that i think people have to get about these operators is that they do have names like you don't have to always say the three arrows thing right three arrows is just representing a concept called bind it's a just a functional concept put into an operator. The bracket star bracket, which I like to refer to as brackety splat, because that's fun to say. <laughs> so that's that's apply. And then the bracket caret bracket, which there's no fun way to say that <laughs> when it's spelled that way. But in Haskell, that's bracket dollar sign bracket. And then you call it brackety cash. So you have brackety cash and brackety splat. <laughs> anyway. So that's fmap though. Bracket angle uh, caret bracket is fmap. Bracket star bracket is apply. Three arrows is bind. So you can read it that way, right? The ID key, key of the dictionary bind to JSON parse and apply to the name key of the dictionary bound to JSON parse and apply that to a pure version of the email key in the dictionary bound to JSON parse. And then all that gets mapped into the create function, which takes three arguments, integer, ID, a string name, and an email optional string. Now, what do the operators really get you here? Like, what would this look like if you were just using those function names? Readability, honestly. Mm. Um, it, It sounds wrong. It really sounds wrong. But let me... Real quick, I'll just send you this over text message and then I'll add it to a gist in the show notes or something like that. But I'll rewrite this using words instead. Do you see? It's nested so deeply. Because what's actually happening is that like apply takes two arguments. And what it's taking is in that example, like that first apply, 
What apply is taking as its arguments are the parsing out the ID, that whole bind statement, and then everything else. So each one of those is taking, you know, so you keep wrapping, nesting these applies and these binds and these F maps deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And what you end up with just, you know, like you can say what you want about operators not being intuitive and that's fine. Like you're not wrong, but I don't think that using operators is more readable than that. Do you? No. Once you know what the operators mean. Yeah, this is. It's it's just hard, it's just hard to parse, you know what I mean? And you're like, wait a minute, where are the you know where are the arguments here? And like, I think I missed a, I think you know it's hard to even write. I think I actually missed a paren somewhere. You did at the end of the second apply. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. I'll fix that. So right there. Actually, you might have missed a couple. Yeah, I don't I don't know. You know what I mean? It's like. <laughs> but the the seven I, closing parens at the end are telling. Right. Because it's it's this one big that's all being passed into FMAP. That entire thing is being passed into FMAP. And so if you when you do it like this, like yeah, you have those words to put there. I don't think it helps. The yeah. concepts are what are were important and the symbols are easy not they're really not that difficult to learn. It's the concepts that are hard to learn. And I get that and I totally understand that and I'm actually okay with people not being okay with functional concepts. That is a decision that you have to make. We're very fortunate that Swift lets us make that decision. It's both an object-oriented language. It's really just an object-oriented language. You know what I mean? It's not actually a functional language, but we can use it like one, obviously. Like you look at the example at the bottom of Tony's, sorry, not the last example, but the second to last example. Like look at Tony's decode function and then look at that Haskell implementation of the same function those look a hell of a lot alike yep you know the fact that we can get swift that close to haskell's implementation is telling of the power of the language i think and the power of the type system that it even lets us do this stuff but i don't like the argument that people associate function the functional concepts directly with the operators using operators instead of words. And I don't think that's quite right. I think that the operators are there just for readability's sake. It's not like functional programming has to use optionals. It just uses functions in a way where words start to break down. And Swift starts to break down when you start doing stuff like all those parens everywhere, you know? Yeah, I like this because, you know, even though this is a functional style, what what's really being done here is really procedural actually very procedural and the operators like to a left to right reader lend themselves well to that and mm-hmm. you know, you're applying this to this you're not saying apply and then two arguments and right. you're like yeah well we're going to do these in you know in the right. order that the arguments are put in here right i follow that if you can do some mental substitution and again the concepts themselves aren't i'll be the first like like i said i don't have a firm grasp on these concepts i just don't and, like, that's something that I'm trying to work on. You know what I mean? I'm trying to get better at that stuff. And that's my choice. I like the functional aspect of things. I think that this is a very nice, very elegant solution to a JSON parsing problem. I'd way rather write this than those dictionary mappings that we have all over the place in, you know, the project that we were working on together. Yeah. You know, a few of these, it's just 
kind of nice. There's l- much less code there. There's much less to worry about. And you get benefit of type safety, and there's so many benefits involved in writing it that way. I, I don't know. But it drives me crazy when people just complain about the symbols because I think symbols can be learned. Uh, there's nothing about these symbols. You know, we're, we've already learned symbols. You've already learned that parens mean grouping for arguments. You already learned plus and minus and 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 or. Like, people do bitwise operations all the time. They never complain about, like, I never know what the hell those bit shifting things do. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> and if you tried to have, like, a left shift function, <laughs> right. like, took a value, you'd be like, this is stupid. Right. So, I don't know. If you're going to complain about something here, complain about the concepts behind it. Complain that you don't think functional programming is a good fit for iOS development. Complain that you think functional programming introduces too high of a bar for learning. Those are arguments that I'll have. But looking at code and being like, that's not readable. That doesn't (laughs) – that's not an argument to me because people say that about Objective-C all day, every day that Objective-C isn't readable. I think it's plenty readable because I'm familiar with it. I'm used to it. I know the patterns. I know what to look for. My brain knows how to parse that code because I've been doing it. That's how brains work. <laughs> you know, People that write Lisp think Lisp is really readable. I can't. I look at that and I don't know what the hell is going on. Mm-hmm. When people are talking, every all these arguments against against operators for readability, they're just ar- arguments that like they're not familiar enough with the operators to know what they do. That's what they're arguing. I think it's a bad argument to make. So that aside, how has your experience been writing like a real application this week in Swift? I've been enjoying it actually a lot. I'd say real world iOS development in Swift, ninety percent of it exactly the same doing the exact same things as I was doing in Objective-C, there's very, very few differences. I did notice that for some reason, just having it be in a different language makes me want to rethink things that I took for granted. You know, I start looking at if-let statements. I start seeing if-let statements, and I start feeling like they're a smell. Like, can I just do something with this? Do I have to care if it's there or not? Isn't there a way I could do this, like that optional chaining stuff? So, um, you know, I was writing, I wrote like a like a very bare bones async image loader subclass for UI image view. It's literally called async loading image view, I think. <laughs> um, and and I would I was going to do it as a category or as an extension on UI image view, but you can't add properties in extensions in Swift. And you don't have access to the Objective-C runtime, at least not in a way that I know how to do. So I couldn't add stuff like, you know, I, I want to hold on to the current process somehow. You know what I mean? And in Objective-C, I've done that by just using associated objects. So setting it as associated object and then kicking it out later when it's done. So I, I had to do it as subclass, whatever. But so I was holding on to the current request. And, you know, when, when I try to set the image based on a new URL, I immediately want to cancel the old request in case it was going on. And then I want to set the current request at the end so that it always knows what request is happening at any given time. So originally I had iflets in two places. I had like a property called async task or something that's an optional. And I did like iflet current task equals async task current task dot cancel right so i unwrap the optional 
and canceled the task. And then later I did if let current task equals async task. After So I set async task to be the return value of the NSURL session data task with URL, blah, 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 right? That whole thing. And then I set that to the local variable, which is an optional. And then immediately after, check to see if it's there. And if it is, I resume it, right? So I, I start the request. Well, that's that's a smell. To do one operation on an object, you shouldn't have to unwrap it. So luckily, you have the question mark operator. So you can do current task question mark dot cancel, right? Which says, if there is a task here, if this is sum, cancel it. And then later, I do current, you know, I change the property name to current task, whatever. So then later, I do current task question mark dot resume. If there is a task, resume it. So now I'm not checking to see, this is a super contrived example, and it's a super simple example, but I'm essentially using optionals the same way I used nil before, which is message it. You know, Before, I would have done this exact same thing by getting the current task and then just messaging it. And if it was nil, it would be a no-op, so I don't care. And if it wasn't nil, then it would do what I wanted it to do. This question mark accessor kind of thing essentially works out to be the same way. But then there's that. There's some places in some you know UI table view delegate and UI table view data source that I'm like having to wrap stuff in if lets, and it's kind of like that's kind of weird that I have to wrap this in an if let, and that feels smelly to me to have to check that stuff. And it it, it got me to rethink what I was doing, and I'd forgotten about some stuff like some default values. You know what I mean? So I had a view model, and I wanted to pull the number of objects out of the, the count of the number of objects out of the view model, but the view model was optional because I set it in a callback, a network callback with the objects that I got back from the network. And so I, I kept having to check for it everywhere, you know what I mean? Or do that optional chaining stuff. It's like, that's weird. Like that doesn't seem right. And so what I did is I changed it to be a variable and not optional, but I gave it a default value of an empty just initialized view model. And then I set a default value on the view model initializer so that instead of, t- if, it, if you don't hand it a collection of objects, it sets itself up with an empty array of objects. So then everything just works because everything's there. Mm-hmm. It kind of sounds like, like null object. A little bit, yeah. Except it's not null, it's, it's there's something there. empty. Right. Know? But I don't know, I'm, I'm enjoying Swift. Um, it's interesting having Tony around too because he's starting to be able to see applications for functional-ish stuff where I wasn't seeing them. So that bind operation is a good example where in the self-road NX path, I DQ a cell. I get a view model from my view model for the cell and then I pass that view model in to the cell and then I return the cell. Right, so four steps: DQSL, so I get a cell, get a view model based on the index path, pass the view model into the cell, and then return that cell. Right. Well, I'm trying to minimize runtime errors as much as possible, and one of the things that I'm, one of the ways that I'm trying to do that is, even though I know, for example, that in this application, in my usage of this object. There is no realistic way to ask the 
main view model for a sub view model outside of the bounds of its collection. This view model is saying there are this many rows. So when the table view asks for a cell view model at that row, it's going to be there. For all intents and purposes, it's impossible for it to ask for something outside of the bounds of the collection that it's holding. But even though it's improbable, I won't say impossible, but even though it's improbable for it to happen, it's still possible. And so I want to minimize that and I want to codify that, right? And so the way I codified that was by changing that sub view model method returns an optional view model. So it checks to see if it's outside bounds. If it is that is the index you're requesting outside the bounds of my collection? If it is, return none or else return this view model. Fetch the object of that collection, create a view model with it, and pass it back. But that ends up causing problems in the data source because now when I ask for this view model, now I have to check. So now I've added a fifth step to those four steps. So now I have to dequeue the cell. I have to get the view model. I have to check to see if the view model if it exists. If it does exist, I, then I configure the cell. And then I return the cell outside of that, right? And that kind of sucks. Like, I feel like just kind of postulating, but I feel like a possible smell that we could start looking for is if you can't think of a name for the thing inside the iflet. So if you do an iflet, and you can't think so like in this case i'm getting back a cell view model so i say cell view model equals view model cell view model for index path passing the index path then immediately after that i have to do an iflet to see if it exists i have to say iflet what do i call this constant actual cell view model like that feels like i'm probably doing something wrong do you know what i'm saying like when you have to name something like no really view model or like, I promise it's a view model. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? I think it's possible that that's a decent smell to be on the lookout for because that's popped up a number of times. And I think there's ways to refactor around that. But so I'm doing this and I'm kind of struggling with it. And I kind of wrap it in if let because I can't think of anything better. And then Tony comes in and says, you know, you might be able to use bind. The same function we were talking about before. You may be able to use bind. You just do bind. And because of the way... Swift functions actually work, which I also think is fascinating. I'm just fascinated by this language in general, to be honest. But, you know, so Swift instance methods, you know about this, about Swift instance methods? Uh, so Swift instance methods are class methods that take two arguments. And the first argument is, so under the covers, what they are is Swift instance methods are curried class methods. And the first argument to that class method is the instance. So when I do foo dot instance method, lowercase foo dot instance method, what it's actually doing is capital foo dot class method parens lowercase foo parens arguments for that method. It's weird. And it kind of sounds bizarre, but what it lets you do is then I can use bind by doing cell view model bind to uh, my cell class dot configure with view model and then pass in the cell instance and then pass in the view model. Does that make sense at all? It's kind of hard to explain. Yeah, but I think that won't work, right? Is that what you're driving at? 
I think it will. in this particular case? I think it will. I thought it's because you can't return none. But it won't return none. Because it's, it just it, won't do it just, anything. It just won't, it just won't configure the view model. Oh, I see. So you're getting a cell either way. Yes. And you'll either just return a configured cell or not. Yep. So the first version isn't actually as ugly as I remember because I do the if let cell view model equals view model dot employee cell view model for next path. Right. So I'm pulling that out inside the if let. So I combined those two steps. So instead of getting it and then checking for its existence, I just get it and check that it has an existence at the same time. But the after thing, by using bind, I get rid of that conditional entirely. I mean, it's still happening, and you kind of you'd have to know that. But it kind of reads more procedurally than the first one. Don't you think? Like, I'm not sold on this at all. I, I just think it's an interesting place where Tony saw the ability to hey, we could use this here. You know what I mean? What do you think? I think this makes less sense. Because I don't really see how it's binding. Like well, I get what it's doing, mm-hmm. but it feels off. So cell view model is an optional. And if it exists, it will pass it into employee cell dot configure with view model cell. It'll pass it as the second argument to that method. And that's kind of what bind does. Checks for an optional. If it exists, applies it to the function. To be honest, I don't know how I feel about pushing down the uncertainty of whether you'll have this thing into some uh, global function hidden behind an operator, to be honest. No, that's fine. Like, I, I'd rather keep it here at this level. Be like, you know, if you go out of bounds, like, you may not get a view model. I think, I'm, again, just postulating about this, but I think that at a certain level of exposure, that would be obvious by the operator itself. By seeing apply there, you'd go, oh, okay, this is returning an optional. Maybe in this case, because it's so simple, I would almost want to just see apply. Like, just apply cell and the view model. And then just know that, like, it'll only do it if, this, if both arguments are not none. Like, in this specific case. Mm-hmm. There, refresh. Yeah, I like that way more. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, it's the same thing. But... It's clearer yeah. in this specific case. Yeah, I don't know. I think I think they're similarly clear personally, but I'm also totally drinking the Kool-Aid of the rest of this stuff, so I'm kind of itching to use it, you know? It's almost like in such a simple case that I can see like the operator use as like, you know, uh trimming down a method name to like just like a couple characters. Mm. Mm-hmm. Whereas like with apply, it's just very clear. It's like we're mm-hmm. applying one thing to the other. Mm-hmm. There's no ambiguity here. Like in this example, it's the same number of lines. Yes. Right. The JSON example is much more severe just because of the level of nesting. You know, and you look at his original at the very, very, very bottom of his post, you know, he has the original decode function from the very, very beginning from before he did anything functional. It's just like if let, if let, if let, if let, return. You know what I mean? Super nested. Yeah. Bunch of casting. I don't know, man. So, like, long story short, I'm finding myself rethinking patterns that I was kind of taking for granted and wondering if there's a better way to do it, specifically because I'm writing in a different language. Like, it just pushes me outside my comfort zone enough to 
look, I, I don't I don't know how to explain it. Just because it's new and everything looks different, I'm looking at everything differently. Yeah, your comfort with Objective C leads you to take little shortcuts, but yeah. now you don't have those sort of like worn out paths, and you actually have to take the long way around, and you're just like. This is all very ethereal, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> You're just picking up on things that you never noticed before because you used to just take shortcuts around them. Or because I've just written it a million times and my fingers are on autopilot. You know what I mean? And it's just like yeah, yeah. you just bang. You're taking mental leaps. Yeah, just bang some stuff out and it's like, yeah, and you know, I've been down this road before. And it's kind of like it's not that the road is different. It's that uh, – You're riding a scooter now. Sure. <laughs> That's a weird analogy. <laughs> Tom says I'm riding a scooter now, and I'm not sure that that fits. <laughs> uh, um, I don't know. I just think it's I think it's doing interesting things to my development process simply because it's new for no other reason. Like it's like writing writing Objective C ish code in Swift is still just making me go like, that's kind of weird. Why do I why why am I doing that? Why am I not doing it another way? Is there a better way to do it? And that's kind of fun. Anyway, you want to sum it up? <laughs> sum it up? Swift weird? <laughs> yeah. No, I like it. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I So a few episodes we talked about how I was specifically talking about how I was a little disillusioned with Swift because everything that I was seeing from just kind of everybody was not interesting to me. It was Objective-C written in a different syntax. And that was really seriously bumming me out about the language. I was like, I was very frustrated that based on all the evidence I had, that it had to be that way. Because to be perfectly honest, what I've always really wanted is just to write Haskell. Like <laughs> if I could write Haskell for iOS and Haskell, like I just kind of want to write Haskell. I want an excuse to learn that. So seeing the end of the blog post where all of a sudden I'm like, Hey, that looks a hell of a lot like Haskell. That's kind of cool. You know what I mean? That, that got me on board a lot more. You know, like over the past week, kind of dipping my toes in the water and seeing the blog posts and seeing all these things kind of has me re-excited for the language and the possibilities in language and wanting to explore what's possible in the language more. Cool. <laughs> Want to wrap it up? Yep. Show notes for this episode are going to be found at podcasts.thoughtbot.com slash buildphase slash 56. And as always, we'd like to hear from you. So email us at buildphase at thoughtbot.com or reach out on Twitter at buildphase. And as always, we appreciate ratings and reviews on iTunes. All right. I'll talk to you later. Later, man.